Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Oates, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our series with James Jordan as he looks at the biblical view of warfare. We are in fundraising season here at Theopolis, and we are looking to add 30 to 40 new Theopolis partners to our roster. Theopolis partners give $500 a year or $50 a month, and they receive a really hefty email from Peter Lightheart every Friday, as well as other perks throughout the year. If you are interested in financially partnering with us, you can take a look at that link down there in the show notes, or go to theopolisinstitute.com, our website, and click on the tab for giving. And we look forward to having many of you join us this year as we seek to provide scaffolding for the kingdom of God. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing tactics of war. In our series on what the Bible has to say about war and tactics of warfare, we have looked thus far at two fundamental perspectives on war. One is the necessity of blood vengeance, and the other is the necessity or right duty of self-defense and to defend the fatherless and widow. And last week, we looked at an example of this in Genesis 14 when Lot was captured and Abraham uh, took some of his trained men, Abram his name was then, and went out and rescued them. This week, we want to conclude a consideration of how God trained the patriarchs in warfare, some of the things that they did uh, and did not do as they ran into conflict with tyrannical military powers, what God expected of them and how they are examples for us. We'll look at Isaac and we'll look at Jacob. And then next time, we'll begin to look at some of the basic principles of fighting wars, prosecuting wars that the Bible sets forth. Let's look, first of all, at Genesis chapter 26. And we'll see from this a couple of ways that Isaac dealt with tyrants and how he functioned in a situation of war and aggression. Now there was a famine in the land in addition to the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your seed I will give all these lands. And I will establish, that is, continue and confirm and keep going, the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and will give your seed all these lands. And by your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this is reiteration of the Abrahamic promise that if people make covenant uh, with the God of Abraham, then they will be blessed. And if they curse Abraham and his people, then God will curse them. So throughout the book of Genesis, uh, you see the Gentiles being converted and saved, and the form that takes is that they are kind to the people of God and make covenants with them. And that's what's going to happen right away. Because, verse 5, Abraham 
hearkened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking, The men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. Uh, first of all, Rebecca is beautiful and attractive, and that is a, a picture of what the church is supposed to be, and it draws men, and that's entirely appropriate. So being uh, the bride and being an image of the church and of uh, the one that is protected by God, Rebecca is beautiful. Isaac says, she is my sister. That was not a lie, as we've discussed in, in this class on previous occasions. When Isaac married Rebekah, he adopted her as his sister before he married her as his wife. And that's why all the negotiations uh, for Rebekah's hand are made with her brother. That's why in Genesis 24, uh, the servant of Abraham gives gifts to Rebekah's brother and her mother, but her father is not mentioned. I mean, he's mentioned in the passage, but nothing's, no negotiations take place with him. And in verse 55, her brother and her mother say, let the girl stay with us a few days, afterward she may go. And in verse 59, it says, thus they sent away their sister, Rebekah, and her nurse, and they blessed Rebekah and said, may you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. All right, so just as the book of Song of Solomon says, my sister, my bride, the relationship of sisterhood in the church, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, is more fundamental and it will endure forever, whereas the marriage relationship that we have is only temporary and is going to end in death. Marriage in heaven, they don't marry and they're not given in marriage, but they are brothers and sisters, or all sisters, uh, insofar as we're the bride of Christ. So that's more fundamental. And there's no lie here when Isaac says that she is my sister. That means something else, too. The relationship of brother and sister being the closest of all relationships means that anybody, nobody in any civilized, Christian, moral, decent, pagan society, even in the, had the least bit of decency and morality, would ever have dreamed of approaching either Sarah or, in this case, Rebecca, without talking to her brother first. You just don't do that. You always negotiate with the brother. And so in order to protect Rebecca, Isaac has to protect himself. If he goes, she goes. If she's going to be protected, he has to stay alive. So he carries out a perfectly legitimate deception. Just as the serpent deceived Eve, so Eve deceives the serpent. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, lie for lie. This is not actually a lie, but it's not the whole truth. It's more fundamentally true that she's sister than even that she's wife. But he doesn't tell him that she's his wife. So... Uh, unlike in the situation with Abraham, there's no actual attack on her, but there is a situation that develops as a result. Uh, because she's a sister, anybody who's interested in her comes to Isaac, and Isaac says she's not for sale, and that's the end of the discussion. But it came about in verse 8, when he'd been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window, and behold, Isaac was sporting with his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. In other words, no, there's no reason to take this in the wrong sense. 
I have to stay alive to protect her and to hold the covenant. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Notice how Satan always tries to blame the righteous. See? Oh, one of our people might have raped her, and then it would have been your fault. That's to put it in modern English. See? If one of our people had raped her, why, you would be to blame. You would have brought guilt on us. Well, those are not exactly Christian moral standards, are they? So... Abimelech uh, at least had enough sense to charge all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. It's forbidden fruit. The day you touch them, dying you will die. That's literally what it says. So Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and he became rich. He became a rich Christian in an age of hunger. And he continued to grow richer, until he became extremely rich. Get the point? And he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household. So the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with dirt. Now that's symbolic. Of, I mean, that has a symbolic or theological dimension to it. Since the seed line maintains the sanctuary and blesses the entire world, they have these wells of water that they maintain. And wells are like a living thing in the Bible. They give out this water so that uh, we give out water. Out of our inmost parts comes living water, The John chapter 7 says. And it's for other people. So the wells of water that we are going to read about here are signs of the ministry of Isaac to all these other people. And when they're stocked up with dirt, remember that the dirt is cursed and it's a sign of death. And so you're killing the well. This is really a kind of a no-no in the ancient world. You don't kill wells of water. Not when you need wells. Water is very hard to find. To fill them up with dirt is a really heinous crime. It's not just some little thing, you know. This is not stomping on somebody's cabbage patch doll. It's more serious than that. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. This is kind of a, you could preach a sermon on revival, see, and reformation out of this. Digging up the same wells that the church dug before to give the same water out, give them the same names, reestablish the kingdom. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. Well, we know it's not, because it just said that they were Abraham's wells. And, of course, we also know that the whole land's been given to Abraham. So Isaac gathered an army together and crushed the heads of the men of Gerar because it was his well. No, it says, so he named the well Essek, which means contention, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it as well. So he named it Sitna, which means enmity, or quarrel. And he moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth, which means a broad place, and should remind you of the Garden of Eden. For he said, at last the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. We could read on. He went up there to Beersheba, which means seven wells. 
But uh, we see in this that Isaac deals, Isaac's tactic of warfare is to avoid conflict and to flee, flight. You want to make a list of proper military tactics? Here's one, flight, running away when the other guys have got all the guns. You don't kill yourself. Now, this does not square with pagan notions of pride and honor. Uh, because we have honor, you know, we fight and go ahead and die for what's ours, even if it's stupid, even if you get killed. Nope, it doesn't square with pagan ideas of pride and honor. It doesn't make any difference. My pride and my honor don't matter. They're easily forsaken. I imagine that, uh, you know, people thought that Isaac was something of a coward because he moved on every time there was conflict. In fact, that's what a number of commentators say. They say Isaac was weak, unlike Abraham, who had this big army. Well, who do they think, what do they think happened to Abraham's army? Isaac inherited it. If Abraham had 318 fighting men, then all of their sons were uh, in Isaac's army. Multiply that by three or four for a new generation. Isaac's got a 1,000 or 2,000 fighting men. He's so powerful, so wealthy, he can hire mercenaries from anywhere. He can hire a whole army of Hittites to come down. The Philistines are scared of him, but he doesn't fight. Now, there are theological reasons for it as well. God had not said, take the land yet. But you see a real lack of contention here, a perfectly appropriate way of dealing with conflict and warfare is just to avoid it, go somewhere else. And that's what Isaac does. And to a certain extent, it's what Jacob is going to do. Let's look at Jacob, and we'll spend the whole time today on Jacob. And some of you have heard this lesson before, but it never hurts to go over the same material again. Because of the age and culture in which we live, uh, repeating this material is important. Let's look at Jacob. Jacob in the Bible is an example of a righteous man, a man who is wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. The Jews have always understood that Jacob is a model man. For some strange reason, commentators over the, and preachers over the last several centuries have tried to make Isaac out to be a rotten individual who was just kind of converted late in life after having stuck it to everybody. That is not what the Bible says. Let's look at what it says in Genesis 25, starting in verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was, true to form, barren. You're going to have to have the seed to come into the world to crush the serpent's head. Unfortunately, the bride is barren. So the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, What's going on? be a good way to paraphrase that. And she went in to inquire of the Lord. Now, uh, if Jacob had been unregenerate in the womb, he and Esau would have been buddies. The fact that they struggled shows, and we don't need any more than this, uh, that Jacob was already regenerate. That's why he fought with Esau in the womb. And the Lord said to her, You're just like Eve, and there are two different sons, Cain and Abel, in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. The seed of the woman 
and the seed of the serpent. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. No way to be an amil or a premil and read this. It says that we will be stronger. The righteous will be stronger, not weaker, than the wicked. And her days to be delivered were fulfilled. Behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, Fuzzy. And afterwards his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So he was given the name Jacob, which means replacement. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Also means heel grabber. Now when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, which in context associates him with Nimrod and is not all that favorable a notion. A man of the field, but Joseph was a peaceful man. Joseph Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, of course, for any of you that are new to the class, this really says Jacob was a perfect man. Tam, which means perfect. It's what God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1. Just jot that in the margin of your Bible as a footnote reference there. Walk before me and be perfect. And that's exactly what Jacob was. Exactly what God told Abraham to be. God said to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. And Jacob did. We're told right at the outset that he did. That means everything he does from here on is an example of what it means to be a perfect man. Job, we're told, was a perfect man. Noah was a man perfect in his times. Same word. But when we get to Jacob, the translators just don't want to believe that Jacob was a perfect man. How could he be? Everybody knows he was a rotten character. Look what he does. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac's face with two trees, chooses the wrong tree. Because he had a taste for game, he liked the fruit of the bad tree. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob had cooked stew. Esau came in from the field and he was famished. No, it doesn't say that. It says Esau had been out hunting for 40 days and he hadn't had anything to eat. And he came in. Not into the camp, but Jacob was way out in the woods somewhere, and Esau came across him, and Esau hadn't had anything to eat for 40 days, and there was no food for miles, and he was starving to death. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have just a swallow of that red stuff there, because I'm starving to death. So his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Go ahead and starve. You have to sell me your birthright before I give you anything to eat. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. What use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, You can't have anything to eat until you swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank. And then, you know, he was sick for days and days and gradually was nursed back to health. And thus Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Isn't that what it says? No. Of course, that's not what it says. That isn't what it says at all. It says he came in from the field, which means he came into camp. If he could have waited 20 minutes, any of the servants could have cooked him a meal. But Esau was not a man who could wait even 20 minutes. Well, I know lentils take longer than 20 minutes to cook. But I'm sure that in a household as big as Isaac's, with, ten, with close to five to 10,000 slaves and servants all around, somebody could have had something for Esau to eat. And Esau can't wait 20 minutes. And it says, thus Esau despised his birthright. So, too bad for the commentators. Now, you see Jacob as a wise and perfect man. This is how the wise and perfect man acts. Now, in the next chapter, we have the material we just looked at, interspersed, and there are all kinds of literary and theological reasons for that that we can't go into. 
And I don't even recall off the top of my head. I've got them written down somewhere. So I don't need to remember. Chapter 27 tells us about how Isaac tried to steal from Jacob what God had given him. God had said, you're supposed to give it to Jacob, but Isaac is determined not to give it to Jacob. Jacob has been patient. He's waited about 70 years. And still, uh, Isaac is attacking him. So Jacob deceives him, deceives the serpent, and gets the blessing as well as the birthright. Then we see that Esau decides he's going to kill Jacob. So Jacob is sent away. Now, thus far, we've seen the following military tactics. We've seen deception. We've seen flight. Now, Jacob comes to outside the promised land. God meets him on the way to assure him that he'll be with him outside the promised land because Jacob's worried about that. And he comes to work for Laban. And he works for seven years. Laban deceives him. And he works for seven more years. Then he works for six more years. And it's kind of interesting what we read here. I That uh, after he'd worked his 14 years, verse Genesis 30 and verse 26, Jacob would just as soon get away from Laban. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you. Rendered you slave service would be another way to translate that. And let me depart. For you yourself know the service that I have rendered you. And Laban said, Now if it pleases you, stay with me, for I have figured it out, that the Lord has blessed me on your account. In other words, even though I worship these teraphim and household gods, I understand something about the Abrahamic covenant. And he continued, Name me your wages, and I will give it. That's called a promise. It's your, if your word is good and your yea is yea and your nay is nay, you don't change the rules after you set them up. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me, for you had little before I came. Now remember, there's no reason to think that there's any lies going on here. You had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household? And he said, well, what do you want? And Jacob said, don't give me anything. Just do this one thing for me, and I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats. These will be my wages. And my honesty will answer for me later when you come to see what my wages are, what I have. Everyone that's not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if it's found with me, will be considered stolen. In other words, this is real easy on you, Laban. All you have to do is walk through my flock, and you'll be able to tell if I've stolen any of yours. I'll just take the bad ones, the ones whose uh, coats of fur, hair, do not produce as desirable a wool. You see, I mean, you want a nice white wool garment, you don't get it off of the ones that are striped and spotted and speckled and mottled and black. That doesn't produce a desirable, high-grade, expensive wool garment. Uh, it's just not as attractive. 
So let me take the defects, and you can have the good ones. And Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. Now, Laban removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats and every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep, and he gave them to the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So, right away, Laban cheats on the deal. Before Jacob, he doesn't permit Jacob to go through the field and pull out the, the uh, inferior ones. Instead, he goes in first, pulls them all out, takes them three days away so Jacob will never hear them ba or even know that they exist. And when Jacob goes in, he sees only white sheep and black goats. And there just aren't any that are mixed. So he start, Jacob starts off with absolutely nothing. Then Jacob, verse 37, took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them, exposing the white that was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs, where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. Interesting associations. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. That's because if you are looking at something while you mate, then that'll be on the child that you bring forth, right? If you want a child to look like Julius Caesar, then you are looking at a picture of Julius Caesar while you mate, and then your children will look like Julius Caesar. This is a science. Now, it's not the science we believe in. It wouldn't work anymore, but it's science. Science changes from century to century. And Jacob separated the lambs and made flocks face toward the striped and all the black uh, in the flock of Laban. What does that say? And Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, it came about when the stronger of the flock were mating that Jacob would place the rods inside of the flock in the gutter so they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. Well, Jacob knows all along that this is nonsense and it's not going to work unless God blesses it. And, of course, Jacob has a vision that shows him that it does. Now, all this time, let's take a look at Jacob. Jacob's growing up. You're Jacob. You're trying to live a decent Christian life. How many people in this room are 50 years and old? No, I won't ask you. I won't ask you. We know that most of us in this room are not yet 50 years of age. Most of us are not yet 40 years of age. Have you ever had any trying circumstances in your life where you just lost your temper and couldn't put up with it anymore? Now let's think about Jacob. Jacob is 20 years old, and his brother is the one who gets all the attention from father. That's very painful. But Jacob doesn't do anything. And Jacob's 25, and Esau's already taken a wife. She's a pagan, but Esau can't wait. He can't wait to find the right wife. He's just got to have a woman. So he's got a wife already. Man with zero saving faith and no patience as a result. Okay? Father still, I mean, even though these wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac still favors Esau. Jacob's 30. He's out doing all the work. He does all the calculations. Esau spends all his time hunting and fishing, living a great life, 
being a macho man. He's got wife number two now. She's making life even more miserable because she's a pagan as well. Jacob doesn't say anything. He just endures it. 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75. Still not married. Put yourself in his shoes. We're told he's the bad guy. Now, what is all this doing to Jacob on the inside? Well, it's either making him hard and bitter, or it's making him wise. Now he comes and works for Laban at the age of 77. He goes to get a wife. He works seven years for a wife, and he's deceived, and he has to work another seven years. Most of us weren't engaged for seven months. Can you imagine being engaged for seven years and having to wait? Then he works for six more years. All this time... Laban's sons are laughing at Jacob behind his back. What an idiot. We've got all the striped and spotted ones over here. Of course, the laughter sort of dies after a while as Jacob's flock gets bigger and bigger with all these inferior grade sheep and goats. And uh, Laban's flock is weaker and weaker with ones that are white but kind of sick looking. They don't seem to live very long. Patience. Seventy years of putting up with Esau every day. Seventy years of putting up with Isaac, your own father, regarding you as an enemy and hating your guts, basically, every day. Twenty years of putting up with Laban. Jacob never struck back. From what we can tell, there was never a sarcastic word. No sassiness. None of this behind his back. Wasn't there. No spitballs. What does that do to you when you're 99 or so years old and you've lived this way? Well, you've got an awful lot of patient self-discipline. You're ready for dominion. Now, finally, Jacob decided that he had served Laban long enough uh, because the same old thing began to happen that had happened with Isaac and the Philistines. Chapter 31 now Jacob overheard Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father he has made all this glory for himself. That's also a type of the Christian, the Christian faith as it inherits through patience and suffering all the glory and wealth of the world. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, It's time to go. I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock. He called them out away from anybody who could hear and said, I behold your father's attitude, and it's not friendly toward me like it used to be, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. Look at all the stuff that Jacob put up with here. Ninety years of all this, plus having his wages changed ten times. You and I put up with all this? Well, we don't necessarily have to. We, don't, we aren't necessarily called to go through all of this. You can always change your job. You can always move. There are things you can do. But look at all this stuff that the example for us went through. Before Christ, this, you know, this man is one of the big examples. And it's still an example for us after Christ. 
And it says God, and he talks about how God did everything. So he leaves. He sneaks out. He flees. Here we have flight, deception and flight once again. And Laban chases after him, and God meets Laban during the night and says, you better not touch him. So Laban comes and chews him out, does all the same things that Satan always does, tries to blame it all on Jacob. And uh, it says in Genesis 31, 36, Jacob became angry and contended with Laban. There's nothing wrong with that at this point. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression and what is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you felt through all my goods, put your crummy hands and cooties all over everything that belongs to me, what have you found that belonged to you? See, here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may... Uh, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you, although under the law he could. I have borne the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. This is what I put up with. By day the heat consumed me and the frost by night. Sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been with you in your house. By the way, you know, you read that and you should think about what the Jews went through in bondage in Exodus because this is a, a proleptic, uh, a precapitulation of what happens in bigger form later on at the Exodus. All the things that Jacob goes through are the things that when you're building uh, cities for Ramses and you're treading out bricks and everything, then the heat consumes you by day, the frost by night, and sleep flees from your eyes. In these twenty years I've been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction, just like at the Exodus. God saw the affliction of his people. And the toil of my hands, as though he rendered judgment last night. Passover. Then Laban answers and said to Jacob, and Laban owns up to everything. Watch. The daughters are mine. You didn't earn them. They're still mine. The children are mine. The flocks are my flocks. Everything here is mine. But what can I do this day for my daughters or for their children whom you've done? Hey, you've stolen them. Your God has visited me in the middle of the night, told me that I better not do anything. So, okay, I guess I have to let you have them. So come, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So they make this covenant. Now Laban, you see, uh, does not exactly indicate a real friendly attitude here. They make this covenant, but this is the one we don't, don't take real seriously. We read in verse 53 that Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Uh, we don't necessarily read that Laban understood anything that was going on. In fact, Laban's whole thing, main thing he was looking for was his household gods when he came after him. So Laban departed. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Remember, after Jesus wrestled with the devil in the wilderness, the angels came and ministered to him. And so it was the God's camp, and he named it the camp of two camps. Verse 2, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp, so he named the place Machanayim, which means a double camp or two camps, just like in worship. We have the angels here, we have people here. Two camps. Now, he realizes that he's coming into the promised land, and Esau is out there, and Esau is probably still torqued off. So Jacob 
knowing what Esau is like and how he doesn't seem to be able to hold anything in mind for more than 20 minutes at a time, uh, sends presence to him. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded him, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban up till now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female slaves, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Well, you don't bring out 400 men just to say hello. Armed to the teeth. Jacob was greatly afraid, understandably, and he divided the people who were with him, and he did all this other stuff. And then he figures out what he's going to do. Verse 13. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. So he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother meets you, and brother Esau meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? To whom do these animals in front of you belong? They'll say, These belong to your slave, Jacob. It's the present sent by my lord to my lord Esau. Behold, he's coming along behind us. And then each drove in succession. So here's Esau, and this big present arrives. Hey. Then another big present arrives. Hey. Just like four-year-old on Christmas morning. Hey, new present, one after another. Because, I mean, to send them all at once, that's not... Esau is not the kind of person who can understand or appreciate anything like that. You've got to treat him like somebody whose memory and the span of attention lasts about 20 minutes. So, as soon as he gets one present, he's real happy, and then, then he starts getting mad at Jacob again, and another present comes. He's happy, and then starts getting mad at Jacob again. Another present comes, see? Then he sends his family over. Then we have this very interesting event. Now let's assume we don't know anything about this. Verse 24 of chapter 32. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now who is this? Is it Esau? That's who I would think. If I was Jacob. And all of a sudden in the dark. And remember there weren't any street lights or anything. It was dark. It's dark. If there's no moon, you don't see anything, just some stars. You're by this brook, and a guy grabs you and starts to fight with you. Who is it? It's Esau. Or maybe it's not Esau. Maybe it's Laban. Maybe Laban has come back. Maybe it's Isaac. Since Isaac is blind, he's fighting with me in the dark to put us on equal terms. Could be any of them. All night long, he's wondering who this is. Who is it? He's been fighting with these people all his life. He's been fighting with Isaac. Isaac's been attacking him. Esau's been attacking him. Laban attacks him. And now this guy comes in the middle of the night to attack him. Who could it be? Any one of those three. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of David's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, prince with God. That is, you are now elevated from the trial stage to the glory stage because you have striven with God and have prevailed. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. He said, Why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So that tells you who it is. Jacob knows who it is. Jacob named the place Peniel. Peniel. He said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him. Of course, that's a standard picture of ascension and strength and glory. Just as he crossed over Peniel, Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Okay, a sign of the foot wound that is a token of the church's strength. Now the interesting thing here is, you see, we find out that it's God. Now what does that mean? It means that all those years when Isaac was holding Jacob down and fighting with him, and Esau was fighting with him, and Laban was fighting with him, it was really God all that time who was fighting with him. Now why is God fighting with Jacob? That's understandable if Jacob is God's enemy, but he's not. Well, it's because Jacob is his child. God gets down and wrestles with him to make him strong. If, if God didn't like Jacob, he wouldn't have wrestled with him. He'd have just killed him. But God gets down the same way a father does and wrestles with his child and makes him do things in order to make him grow up and become strong. He puts him through difficult, stretching, trying experiences in order to raise him up and make him strong. Now remember, we are looking at how God makes his people into warriors. This is one of the ways. Putting you through the ringer. What we can see from this are a couple of things. Jacob, at this stage in history, is the man that God has wrestled with for 90, almost 100 years, and has made him into a strong warrior. But how does Jacob fight? How does this warrior fight? Well, basically by appeasement. I mean, this is Munich 1 here. All these gifts to Esau. It's Jacob's land. Jacob has been given the blessing. Jacob has been given the, has uh, traded for the birthright. He's gotten the blessing. He inherits everything. Why didn't he just settle it with Esau? Sure would have saved a lot of trouble. All the way down through history, Obadiah would never have needed to write his book because the Edomites wouldn't have existed. Herod of Idumea would not have been involved. Too bad. Let's Esau go. Well... Sometimes this is how you fight. Sometimes this is the appropriate tactic. Sheer appeasement. When they're at your borders and they're stronger than you are, which actually in this case was the case, uh, you just give them a whole bunch of presents and they go away. doesn't always work. Some people can't be appeased. It's a legitimate tactic in warfare. It's one of the things that God taught Jacob how to do. Well, next time we will... Look in the Pentateuch and other places. We are in the Pentateuch now. We'll look in the law section and we'll isolate some of the basic principles of fighting. We've looked at some basic categories. The interesting thing that we find with the patriarchs is that as God's warriors, they don't do very warlike things. They seem to endure a whole lot and be patient a whole lot and practice things like flight, dishonorable as it is, appeasement, buying off the enemy, Deceiving the enemy. Well, I mean, why get yourself killed? Hey, man, these are smart Jews here. That's why the Jews are still around after 2,000 years, because they don't go up and fight with people about stuff, usually. Not till recently. Now they're in trouble. Kind of forsook these principles here of going along and getting along. But um, 
These are principles that we find here in the book of Genesis, but they're not the only ones in Scripture. And so next time we'll begin to narrow our attention to actual military-type principles and laws. We could probably take discussion for one minute here. I like to time it so that I don't have to take any discussion. Then I don't get challenged. All right. Why does Jacob send his family across the stream and stay on this, the other side? I'm not sure. Possibly, yeah, because he's a coward. <laughs> Uh, there, there are a number of possibilities. The, what attracts me the most is that there's a certain amount of security to being over in the promised land. And Jacob figures any contest that's going to take place is probably going to take place on the side they're coming from. But I don't know for sure. All right, let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for the examples that you give us in the Scriptures that show us how to behave in all different kinds of times and seasons. We ask that you would enable us always to submerge our own honor and pride and to live in terms of your honor and in your future. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.